Welcome to Prepare to Care, the AARP podcast that provides resources and tools to help support caregivers and their families. I am your host, Charlene Hunter-James. In this time of COVID-19, social isolation and uncertainty, your brain health may be at risk. As a caregiver, the level of anxiety you may be experiencing may be at an all-time high. We're talking about dealing with stress in a prior podcast, but during this show, we will talk about keeping your brain healthy and how important is that. Audette Rackway is head of special programs at the Center for Brain Health in Dallas. She's here to give us tips on boosting our brain health and juggling multi-generational caregiving duties. She'll also discuss how her organization is working remotely with people caring for someone with Alzheimer's. It is all coming up next on Prepare to Care. Ms. Rackley, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Charlene. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, tell us about your background and what you do at the Center for Brain Health. Gladly. Um, My background basically is training. I'm a speech-language pathologist, and my time at the Center for Brain Health has been focused on research, and most specifically in research and developing clinical programs for people to so that they can optimize brain function no matter what is going on. So um, I've worked with healthy aging population, people with senior moments or mild cognitive impairment, as well as people with early Alzheimer's. But regardless of the group of people that we work with, our whole goal is how do we optimize function? And, you know, that's about everything we do at the center. What can we do to help people increase their brain performance for life? Okay. And where is the center located? So we're located in Dallas, Texas. We would have to travel up to Dallas to see you. (laughs) Right. Okay. So how are our brains being affected during this time of isolation and uncertainty? You know, that's a really great question. And I think it's important to realize that our brains are probably being affected differently. Because when you think about it, there is a diversity of experience that's happening. You know, some people may be at home and isolated and actually enjoying that um, more simplistic lifestyle and having time to, to spend with family, whereas sometimes that that time may be a little stressful. But then there's also the other end of the spectrum where you have frontline workers or maybe people who have lost a job. And so very significant stress is going on. So I think it's important to realize that the outward effect of what's going on can be different, but also the person themselves has an opportunity on how they want to respond to those stresses. And that can make a difference as well. And so just in terms of maybe putting it in perspective. If you're one of those individuals who's at home and you have a little little extra time, more time than you used to have, maybe use that time as a brain exercise to say, what are some things that I could be accomplishing that I didn't have time for before? you know, before this COVID, and or maybe even how can I strengthen relationships or um, or other, bring other good things into my life and to think how can I take what I'm learning and apply after COVID. But then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're overwhelmed with just the responsibilities and the stresses, it may be to realize 
your opportunities to maybe mitigate some of those stresses. So maybe rationing how much news you listen to. And if you're a person who just tends to worry and you're having a hard time turning your mind off from all these things that are going on, maybe starting to practice mindfulness, you know, taking just a few moments a day to do deep breathing or go out for a walk, even if it's a short walk. But to find, you're not going to eliminate the stresses, but it will be healthy for your brain if you try to find some ways that can dial those back a bit. Okay, well, you've touched on my next question, which was what are some of the ways that we can boost our brain health? Should we all be learning a new language or learning something new to do? Crossword puzzles or, you know, training for the marathon or something. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, it's so interesting when most people think about brain health, you know, they think they're they're looking for that one magic bullet, that secret activity. What mm-hmm. is that one thing that I can do that's going to give me the most benefit? And what I really want people to know is there's really no quick fix. There's no magic mm-hmm. bullet. But the other side of that coin is to realize that there's lots that we can do to help our brain health. So whether that's modifying lifestyle choices that can so we can have a more brain healthy lifestyle or whether it's engaging in activities that engage our brain that any of those options are are good to consider but i think the the way to look at it is we want to limit the negative so so if you know you're doing something that's not a brain healthy habit then try to limit that and do as many positive things so to try that balance it's not an all or nothing approach mm-hmm. it's really taking meaningful steps every day to move in the right direction and you know when we think about our our mental abilities and challenging those you know we have a training program at the center called um, smart training which is strategic memory advanced reasoning training and in that training we give strategies to help people approach their daily activities and turn those into a brain exercise so rather than adding something to an already busy schedule to think about how can I turn those activities in my daily life into a meaningful brain engagement opportunity. So just to to look around your house and say, is there a project that I've been putting off or is there a challenge I need to solve or something I want to make better? So let that be your challenge and then use your brain to come up with some objectives to make that happen. So you're not going to solve something all at once, but if you can do something meaningful every day for 10 or 15 minutes to move that project forward, then you will have this this benefit over time and you will create that habit of, of um, kind of approaching your day in a way of, of solving a problem and, and adding something good to your day. And just that boost of dopamine on a, on completing something, even if it's a small task that day, then can be motivating to keep that up over time. Well, I like hearing that because I've been working <laughs> on cleaning out a closet since mid-March. And I made much headway. Okay, I noticed that you use the term care partners. So who is a care partner and why do you use that term instead of caregiver? Well, you know, my focus in what I in my programs with people with early Alzheimer's and dementia are for people recently after a diagnosis. 
And when people get a diagnosis, they're very aware of what is difficult. And oftentimes, they lose sight of those many things that they can continue to do. And mm -hmm. I think the term care partner really just acknowledges that there is a partnership. So just as the individuals with the diagnosis wants to feel like they can still have a meaningful contribution to their day mm -hmm. and to their, their family life, it's also mm -hmm. helpful when the, the spouse is able to acknowledge, yes, this is a relationship where I can still get support, support and, you know, we can talk about decisions together and to, to really take advantage of that in the early stage. And certainly as the disease progresses, that ability of the person with the diagnosis is lessened in their ability to participate. But in those early years, I think it's a great way to, um, to kind of push the, the relationship and forward and get on a positive path as early as possible. Um, perhaps in some ways, all of us have become a care partner to someone else now during this quarantine. Worrying about someone else's welfare can be fairly stressful. What would you say to someone who is new to this role as a care partner? Well, you know, I'm going to start with some advice a friend gave me once, and that was to realize we can't control everything. So part okay. of it is take a deep breath and realize, you know, we're things won't work as we as we want all the time. Mm -hmm. But, but one thing to keep in mind is to move from a, an over-focus on risks because if we're, if we're just focused on the what-ifs and is this safe, that can be a very limiting mentality. And it can actually reduce our ability to think flexibly and come up with creative solutions to a problem. So if we shift that to one of more potential and how can I minimize risk or how can I make this process of providing care to someone I love a meaningful experience, then we can then, then we can really shift that and open up our creativity. But another thing to think about is if, you know, a person does have difficulty, you know, kind of turning off the worry button in our brains is to consider journaling and maybe at the end of the day just sit down and think what's something positive that happened today so that we can start training our brain to move towards looking for the positive instead of just focusing on the negative and you know it reminds me actually of something my yoga teacher says and that's it's practice not perfect and so in anything in life, I think if we have that attitude, it kind of allows us to realize it won't go perfectly, but this is something that I'm moving towards. That's good advice. Repeat that again. I like it. It's, it's practice, not, not perfect. perfect. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Most people don't want to be a burden on others, but their loved ones just want to help. And I think we've all had friends and family like that. So when someone asks you, how can they help out during this time of isolation and uncertainty, do you have some suggestions for how to respond? You know, it's like I'm hesitant to give to advice to people older than I. So I'm going to speak as the daughter of two very independent people, and because I've always admired that in my parents. They took mm -hmm. care of things, and, and I can appreciate it when someone doesn't want to be a burden. 
But it's also helpful in a great brain exercise to consider things from another person's perspective. And so I would just offer to those individuals, if they're listening, that for the person who loves you and wants to help you, it, you're actually helping them by giving them the opportunity to help you. Because not only can that um, give a very important dynamic to your relationship, but when we look at the research on kindness and compassion, it can actually lower blood pressure. And if, if your, your child is actually concerned about your well-being, by letting them help you, you can reduce their anxiety and mm -hmm. you might even improve their sleep. But just that process of doing something for another person can release dopamine, which is that feel-good hormone, and, and it can accelerate their sense of happiness. So that verse of it's better to give than receive, this is an opportunity for um, you to, to give that gift to a child, their, their ability to help you. The over 50 crowd is sometimes called the sandwich generation, and we've heard that term before caring for aging parents as well as their kids. And now we know the kids, whether in high school or college, are probably home all day long with you. This is almost certainly adding unforeseen stress to our daily lives. What are some brain-healthy tips for people in this situation? Well, the first thing I would say is to consider how to build team, you know, how to invite your children into being being part of the team and, and really inviting them to help solve problems. You might be amazed at the solutions they come up with. And I'll just give an example of one of my group members currently. Um, a gentleman in one of my groups was diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, in his 50s. And so still had kids at home, and his wife invited their oldest son to do some research and see if she could find some opportunities for um, his father to be involved in. And that's how they found us. They found the Discovery Group, which is our group for people mm -hmm. with early Alzheimer's. And, you know, so they were able to join into one of our programs. And so your kids might amaze you with, the way that they can solve a problem and might come up with some solutions that you hadn't even realized. And in addition to kind of encouraging your kids to grow in a new way, it's also great for you, the person who may be carrying the brunt of the caring, and in realizing that you can delegate to others. Because if you can find ways to simplify, I mean, because there's a limit to what everyone can do. There's a limit to, to each of our capacities. So um, in addition to delegating to others, if you can um, find ways to simplify, maybe you can start a stop doing list. Are there some things that you think need to happen that if you didn't do really wouldn't matter? So finding ways to reduce your own stress would be really important. And just in the midst of giving care, and you realize that you want to do that for the people that you love, realize that there are people who love and care for you. So just as you want people yeah to be able to receive help if you can have that mindset of not only just receiving help, but being willing to ask for help if you need it. In your discovery group, you are engaging directly with individuals diagnosed with Alzheimer's and their care partners. So how have you been able to have that same impact remotely? You know, when 
when this all started, I will admit to being a little concerned in how our groups would, would translate to a Zoom environment, but I will tell you that I have been very pleasantly surprised because with the, the Zoom capabilities, I've actually been able to meet more frequently with some of our groups, and so that's been an incredible opportunity to provide meaningful engagement for them during this time of isolation. Um, especially when many, you know, most of their activities have just fallen off. So this has been an incredible opportunity for them to not only be engaged cognitively through the discussions that we have, but to also continue to connect to those relationships that they have made. Um, in addition, it's, it's really allowed me to be creative. Some of our groups, um, I used to have a group that would have one group for the people with the diagnosis and a separate group for the care partners. And we've actually combined that group, so we've had discussions together, which have been very powerful. And just today, I was, I realized that there's this potential to reach, you know, I said we were in the Dallas area. I had a, a call from someone in Georgia who has early Alzheimer's and is looking for some resources. And, you know, the next discovery group that I have, I'm going to invite him to be part of it because you don't have to be in Dallas to do it. So this just opens up the potential for the programming that we have in the center to be um, to impact people well beyond the Metroplex. So that's really exciting to me. I know that we don't have a cure for Alzheimer's disease, but I'm sure in your work um, you come across brain research and what it's telling us about the ability to stave off decline, to either postpone or prevent something like Alzheimer's. What should we all be doing right now to extend or just um, help with the quality of our lives in this area? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to start with kind of focusing on what we're learning from research. Mm -hmm. Because when I started at Center for Brain Health about 20 years ago, the main focus of research is what can we do in terms of treatment after a person is diagnosed. And what we've learned is that it's it's been very difficult to to find a treatment to, to stop progression. We haven't done that yet. We're still working on that, and there's hope for that. But in research, we've kind of stepped back and looked more broadly at the diagnosis. So we know that Alzheimer's disease, that pathology starts building in the brain 10 to 20 years before the first symptoms. And so there's a huge focus in research now on impacting lifestyle factors. So what can we do as early as possible so that even if we don't prevent something like Alzheimer's, can we postpone it? Can we slow it down enough that, you know, that a person doesn't have to deal with it? And much of this research is based on lifestyle factors. And there was a study done or that was published in Lancet Neurology a number of years ago where they looked at the different risk factors associated with cognitive decline, and they, they assigned kind of a percentage risk for each of those factors. And so what we know is that there's some factors that we can't impact. So we have no control over our genetics or our family history. So that's kind of set. But there's a number of factors that we do have control over. So things like stress, things like um, how much sleep we get, levels of education, our nutrition, depression, smoking. There's a number of, of factors that we can 
impact. And so when they looked at these numbers, and if they took out all of these controllable risk factors that we have, they postulated that we could potentially reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by a third, or maybe reduce a th eliminate a third of the cases. So that's pretty powerful when we think about it, just the potential that the choices that we make on a given day could help create a brain that's more resilient and that can kind of stave off some of the effects of something like Alzheimer's. And so when we get to what should we be doing now, I would say that the best that advice I can give is don't wait until something goes wrong before you think about your brain health. We can all do something now to move towards a healthier brain. So start those healthy habits. If you feel like your sleep is not good, then look into that. Talk to your doctor about things. Do some research. And, and there's something called sleep, hy sleep hygiene. So educate yourself about things that you can do to maybe promote better sleep. We know about stress or the things that you can do, whether it's mindfulness or just not allowing yourself to worry or going out for a walk. What are some things that you can do to mitigate your life so that the impact of stress on your brain can be reduced? So any of us could probably make a list of 10 to 15 things that we know are going to be healthy brain habits. So I would just encourage people to, to identify what is something that you would think would make the most impact? And rather tr than trying to do everything all at once, be strategic in what you choose to focus on and, and make small changes over time. And then as you get one thing in line, add another. We can all, we can all make strides in that. So that's really the main thing that I would, I would suggest is like it's never too late to start and it's never too early to start. So make those brain healthy habits and try to dial down your own risk factors. You have really provided some great information here today and some valuable tips. You know, I remember now that it's uh, practice is not perfect, <laughs> but I don't remember <laughs> anything else. So where can people go to learn more about the Center for Brain Health and your discovery groups and the latest science? Is there a website, a phone number? Yes, I would direct people to our website. You can go to Center for Brain Health. Dot com, and there you can find information on healthy brain tips. You can find information on our research projects and also our discovery group, which is our program for people with a recent diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Thank you. Uh, we have really enjoyed your presentation today, and perhaps you will join us later uh, with some other uh, related information. We hope you found the information helpful, and we encourage you to follow the Prepare to Care podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, or at www.aarp.org slash Houston PTC. Thanks for listening, and as always, thanks for caring.